The Green Sundays of the year focus themselves on Christian discipleship, the ways, the means, and the cost of Christian discipleship. But also, it is a season where we talk about, uh, do some teaching when it's appropriate. And I just thought this week I'd say a word about the prayer that the presider uses to begin the liturgy, the collect. comes from the Latin word collecta, which means to uh, gather the people. So it affords the opportunity to say a little something about the entrance rite which is part of the history of Western liturgy and other liturgy as well. When the Constantinian settlement occurred in the 4th century, about 314 uh, CE, the church began the move from house churches to public buildings. Constantine had now the bishops and the clergy who were sort of civic officials, and they celebrated their liturgy in big buildings that had an apse like this, the style of uh, Christian architecture then. And as the result, they had to come in. They had to process in. And so there was a rite that began to be developed to come in. So in some of these big churches in Rome in that period that are still in existence, they were walking, there were a lot of people coming in. So you had a situation where how do we organize this, right? So people would come in, lots of stuff going on in the congregation. People would come in, the bishop was last, all the uh, clergy and lay assistants were coming in. And the choir was singing Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, and maybe Gloria in excelsis as time went on. And they had to get in. So they were getting in. And then when they got in, you know, fortunately I missed this in my ministry. Uh, There was a liturgical garment that was worn by the clergy uh, called the maniple. The most dangerous and inconvenient liturgical garment there was that had become allegorized in the the writing of the Christian church as uh, the towel that our Lord used to dry the feet of the disciples, the quintessential priestly garment. I can remember when I was Episcopal, before I went to seminary, some clergy, if they were asked to administer the Eucharist, would go in and get a maniple and put it on, even with a cassock and a surplice, and administer uh, the Holy Communion as necessary to do. Well, it came actually from this. Roman senators used to, in processions, before they spoke in the public buildings, used to have a cloth that they would hold as they came in so that when whatever was going on was concluded and the crowd was still talking or cheering, the senator would come to the center and would take this piece of cloth and wave it like this to have them stop so we could start. So the bishop, after the Constantinian settlement, came in with the same thing and would wave it to the choir to say, stop singing. We're all in now. 
So we conclude the entrance rite with something called the collect. It comes from the Latin word collecta, to collect uh, all of the themes and the thoughts and the individual prayers of the people present in worship, and also to give us some thematic direction, some connection to what we're going to read about in the Bible. So today we have a collect that says, Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the usual formula. So if we search the readings that we we read today, it may be that the gospel from Luke actually has something to do with this collect and draws our attention to it. And in different ways, the same is true for the other two cycles of the reading. We're in year C, year A is Matthew, year B is Mark. And the same thing will be true for the gospel uh, on those Sundays that are the same as this one. I mention this because this is one of the most difficult to understand passages in the New Testament, I think. And I'm going to actually make a try. Uh, I'm a member of the finance committee of the Diocese of El Camino Real. And uh, the chair of the committee, Richard Mueller, uh, always begins with some sort of an ersatz Bible study. And he comes up with these crazy passages. So every once in a while he asks people to, you know, do something. I always give them this. Let's read this as the finance committee and see if we can make any sense out of what it says. Luke, in his gospel more than any other gospel writer, is concerned with issues of economic justice and equity. He is concerned with how individual Christian persons and communities use their resources. He is concerned about the relationship between um, looking after the necessities of life and what the obligation is that we have to extend and to have right relationship with our stuff. I mentioned this last week. I remember many years ago when I first came to St. Luke's, I was having lunch with Father Schlegel, my predecessor. And he uh, talked, he's an anthropologist. He taught at the University of California in Santa Cruz. And he said to me that uh, the basic unit of human beings is the family. Or an anthropologist might say your kinship group, right? So the kind of uh, moral, ideal, uh, all of the things uh, about that are that our first responsibility is to our families. And that means our generosity, our time, talent, and treasure, our energy, our physical strength, everything is devoted to making sure that the kinship group thrives. So here we have the Christian religion with a Savior who in all of the Gospels has a critical distance 
between himself and his teaching and family. I get a big kick out of the species of Christianity in this country that talks about family values. Drives me crazy. So what do we hear from Jesus? Unless you hate your mother and your father and your sister and your brothers, yes, and even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Who are my brothers and my sisters and my cousins and everybody? These are my brothers and sisters and cousins, the people of God. So maybe we have to have some adjustment in our thinking about this, not that we apply all of our energy and everything to the kid. We are. That's a, that's a moral obligation. I was raised with most white middle-class people in this country believe that. They're taught that. That is the major value. You go out and you get a job and you become a success and you, and you just labor and bring all your resources into the kinship group. So Jesus is saying to the people that follow him, you know what you have to do? You, don't, you have to continue to do that, but you have to bring the same energy, the same commitment, and the same enthusiasm to others beyond your kinship group. And as a community, we all do it together. And by virtue of doing that, we create a society where it is easier for people to be good. We labor to do it. It is, it is a value in the Christian faith and life. So Jesus today is speaking the parable. It's called various things. It's called the parable of the dishonest manager. It's also called the parable of the shrewd manager. The shrewd manager uh, is called by the master to come in and give an accounting. He's told that he has mismanaged the master's resources and that he can no longer be his manager. So he's got to go to all the people that owe the master and settle up with them. So we hear about how he does it. He goes to the guy who owes the master uh, olive oil and cuts the bill in two. And he goes to the guy who owes wheat to the master and he takes 20% off the bill. He does some other things. So how are we to interpret this when Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. And at the conclusion of this reading, it says, you cannot serve God and wealth. When I first became an Episcopalian and before, and we read the authorized version, the King James Version, it said, mammon. Unrighteous mammon. And then you cannot serve God and mammon. We now say wealth. You know why? Because nobody was ever really clear about what mammon meant. We don't know what mammon meant. Right? It could have been wealth, but it also could have been a whole constellation of things that surround it. Well, privilege, power, all of those kinds of things. Wealth is a better way to describe what it is that he's talking about. And we, you know, also don't know what the tone of voice that Jesus had was either when he was speaking this parable. So here's what some biblical scholarship might suggest. The manager has either reduced the bills by eliminating his commission 
or permitting falsification of the amounts to his master. One is not dishonest, and the other one is. The astuteness is in using possessions so as to gain rather than lose one's future. If people like the dishonest manager use possessions to secure their future, Christian disciples should use their possessions to advance the values of the kingdom of God and to cultivate the generosity that a mature Christian spirituality creates. It's also unclear who the audience is that he's speaking to. Because in the, in the time of Luke and before, if you were referring to the sons of light, it meant different groups, but one of them was the community out at Qumran, the Essenes, where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from. They lived in a semi-monastic community where they had given up all their possessions. So the sons of light could be that group juxtaposed against the tax collectors. Or they could be the Pharisees who made huge amounts of money but didn't give any of it away, were very tight-fisted and penurious, and the tax collectors. So I thought, you know, once in a while it's good to read a commentator from somewhere outside of the Western Hemisphere, or for that matter, Europe. There's an Indian biblical commentator named Picharan, who wrote this about this passage. Bear with me. Jesus' target audiences are two groups of people. One that was despised and frowned upon by society, and another that enjoyed much honor and respect. Both shared this common love, amassing wealth. The openly corrupt taxmen are referred to as children of this world. The Pharisees, who fanatically kept the law, believing it to be the light of life, are described as children of light. The taxmen had no qualms about adopting dishonest means, but were known for their liberal spending habits and for using ill-gotten wealth freely to gain favors and friends. The Pharisees amassed wealth through legally right ways, but were known to be tight-fisted with their hard-earned money. The former are commended for their worldly shrewdness, and wooed to give up dishonest ways and receive their own heavenly treasures by proving trustworthy with what belongs to others. The latter are commended for their honesty and advised to freely use money to gain the friendship of saints who would welcome them into eternal dwellings when their legalistic righteousness fails to gain them salvation. Both are candidly told to break free from the love of money and seek God with an undivided heart. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Though there is no mention of how the taxmen responded, we have reasons to believe that the likes of Matthew, also called Levi, and Zacchaeus were indeed converted by this teaching. So if we wish to appropriate this text, you know, what in the world is it saying to us?
I think it's saying to us that we need to learn how to have a right relationship with our stuff. And that that is a lifetime process of coming to what it is that you need to do with regard to your resources. And it's certainly clear, although the church has not always learned this, and it is now bubbling up to the surface, that sound business methods and good governance can help you financially. And so we need not to be overly idealistic about these things and think that they're not important. They are very important. And how we use our resources and have sufficient resources to do godly things uh, is very important. And I think that's what Jesus is getting that into when he speaks about this. Jesus' point, the point he makes is you cannot let possessions, your possessions run you. Last week, William Temple walked out of the bomb shelter during World War II, and the Episcopal house, the palace that he was in, was blown to smithereens in London. And he turned to somebody who was right next to him and said, thank God I'm free at last. Right? Have you ever wished? Nowadays we hear people say to us, well, I'm doing a little downsizing. Right? We could all do a little downsizing, you know, not just for worthy purposes, but for some sense of uh, balance in our life. So, so this week, see if you can remain a little bit anxious about world, less anxious about worldly things. Uh, give thanks for the fact that, as I always say, you have a part, you, a part to play in God's plan for the cosmos. You count. And how you use your resources uh, definitely connects to all of that. I haven't said something about a term that Luke uses here, and that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not somewhere else. We don't live our entire life hoping we get to the kingdom of God. We're in the kingdom of God. And it is our job to make it more true so that it is easier to see. So Jesus is speaking about the present reality the kingdom of God and the values of the kingdom of God and a future reality that people moving forward because of our influence and because of being the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be, those values get sustained. If there's anybody who ought to be idealistic in this world, it's Christians. However, it is also important to understand that it is necessary to be realistic about our idealism. About 20 years ago, there was a study in the Episcopal Church by the Cornerstone Project on the health of the clergy, which some of you may think is an oxymoron. But they found out that the healthiest clergy were ones who were realistic about their ideals. They were realistic about the church. So somebody that is not realistic may think that we're going to go from zero to 60 and now become the perfect institution that we have always wanted to be by just doing a few things that we can all do with consistency and rigor. 
and no humor. So remember that you have a role to play in the values of the kingdom. And not only are we beneficiaries of the values of the kingdom of God as human beings for our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, we are also ambassadors for the values of the kingdom of God. That's part of what good stewardship is. We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. So see if you can understand how to be part of that uh, and know that it doesn't have really anything to do with giving up all your stuff. Amen.